According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. And we are moving on to verses 4, 5, and 6 this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. The last couple of weeks we've been looking at verses 1, 2, and 3, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus exemplified what we are here commanded to do. He had his eyes fixed, not on himself, but on the joy set before him. We now can have our eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the joy set before us. So fixing our eyes on Jesus. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The perspective for the life of Christ and his sufferings and the sacrifice that he uh, accomplished on our behalf becomes motivational for us to not lose weary, to not lose heart. When we're tempted to just throw it all out and walk away from the Lord. We don't let ourselves do that because He didn't do that. We keep our eyes fixed on Him and He stayed obedient every step of the way, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, once again, this is our privilege and our blessing to stand before you, to assemble before you, to be presented before you. And Father, we do present ourselves before you as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So this morning, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, Father, that we might receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. Show us and teach us, Father, the application for not only what it means but what you expect of us in living this out in our lives day by day. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so now with these three verses, all very exhortative, all very uh, much, most of them are in the first person uh, plural where the author is including himself in this. You know, we have the cloud of witnesses. We lay aside the sin. Let us run with endurance. And so it's very much the author includes himself in all of this, fixing our eyes. But then in verse 3, he does get pointed. The author then directly addresses his readers with a you. And uh, that's what's going to continue here in verses 4, 5, and 6. So when that transition takes place in verse 3, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's the very key transition from the first person plural to the second person, where the author removes himself from the consideration and is directly addressing his, his readers, the recipients of the, the original recipients of the Hebrews epistle. So they are on the verge of returning to Judaism. They are on the verge of abandoning New Testament Christianity, going back to what they had before, trying to go back to what they had before they named the name of Jesus Christ, which was an Old Testament Jewish 
priesthood as we understand it. And so that's the danger, that they will grow weary and lose heart. He then expands upon that by highlighting uh, what they have not yet endured, and it kind of goes unspoken but implied that it could very well be in the near future. And so they need to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus as they were told to do in the first two verses. So he says in verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of uh, shedding blood or having blood shed in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So tell a bunch of Old Testament Bible whizzes like the Levitical priests would have been, the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests that are the recipients of this, of this epistle, uh, that they have forgotten some of their Bible study from Sunday school. They have forgotten some of their childhood lessons that they had learned in, uh, in these things that are quoted from Proverbs uh, chapter 3. So you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. That's a powerful word. That's like the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, where they visually portrayed a scourging and it was gruesome to watch. And this is the verb we have here. He scourges every son whom he receives. I'm going to stop the reading there. It follows with verse 7 and following, talking about discipline and the reason why we embrace discipline. But we want to focus today on 4, 5, and 6 and and make sure we're solid on the background from Proverbs in the Old Testament before we even move on into into the church age application. Although the Hebrews epistle recipients had previously endured a great conflict of suffering, including imprisonment, at the time of this epistle's writing they had not yet suffered martyrdom. Not yet, but it was on the way as we understand it. And this is where we kind of take different glimpses from chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 12. We we piece them together into a uh, consistent view so that all of them reconcile with each other. Because it says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's not them shedding the blood, that's them having their blood shed in the resisting and the striving against sin. So that has not yet happened. But we do know they've gone through a bit already. In chapter 10, you might recall, verses 32 through 34... He says, remember the former days... When after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And this was an interesting expression, having been enlightened. And it wasn't really, you know, you know I saw the light, I saw the light. It's, it's, not, it's not a Billy Graham evangelism uh, salvation per se, as we recognize it. But Old Testament believers who see the light of the glory of Christ and they identify with Jesus as their Messiah. And so they, they, I call it matriculation, they go from Old Testament believing status now to New Testament believing status. And that is so key. Throughout the book of Acts, throughout many of the New Testament epistles, we see these crossovers. And if you understand the crossovers, they're not converts. A convert is an, old, is an unbeliever who gets saved. But a crossover is somebody who's already a believer. They're already saved. They were just saved in the Old Testament. 
They were saved before Jesus died on the cross. And so they were looking forward to a coming Messiah. And some of them lived in parts of the ancient world. They, they weren't even there when, when it happened in Jerusalem. They find out months and years later that, oh, the Messiah we're waiting for, he came. And at that point, they, have to, they don't have to get saved a second time. How do you get saved a second time? But they do have to accept Jesus as their Messiah so that they can cross into the body of Christ. And that's, once you get that doctrine down, and we've touched upon it before, but once you get that doctrine down, once you realize that in the book of Acts we have both converts and crossovers, oh, it really helps. It does help because then you recognize that some of the things that are are wrongly thought to be gospel messages, they're not gospel messages at all. Not for converts. They're gospel messages for crossovers. Like when Peter told the Jews in Jerusalem, repent and be baptized. All right? He was calling on Old Testament believers to have a change of thinking regarding Jesus of Nazareth, whom they crucified. That's why they were pierced to the heart and said, what must we do? All right? And so you, you, you know why this is such a blessing? Because that repent and be baptized is directed towards the crossovers of which none remain on the planet today. We're 2,000 years past that, okay? You are never going to encounter an Old Testament believer that was saved before the cross. And so you will never have the opportunity to address a body of people and tell them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We will never say that. That's a terrible gospel message. We say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And that's, uh, that's the issue there. So those details come into play here with what happened to these Old Testament believers when they named the name of Christ. The former days. When after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Imagine the peer pressure if, if the bulk of these readers, the, the bulk of this church audience that's being written to here, if they had been Levitical priests serving in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, well, the priests that stayed behind and did not cross over, the, priests, the priesthood that remained in Jerusalem till the Romans destroyed it, they, uh, they did not take kindly to these uh, heretics, these traitors, these uh, Jews that uh, were abandoning Moses, so to speak goes on to say, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. And so they had houses confiscated, they had land that was seized, and, and on some occasions uh, Barnabas was so noteworthy because his land that he owned was on Cyprus. It wasn't even subject to the Sanhedrin claiming it, but he went ahead and sold it anyway. Even though it was untouchable and beyond their jurisdiction, he went ahead and cashed it out so that he would have liquid uh, assets in order to, to fellowship and share with the body of Christ that was being uh, mistreated in Jerusalem. So that's what they went through. We also have an indication, of course, here we have the mention of uh, prisoners. You showed sympathy to the prisoners in uh, 1034. And they get mentioned again in 13.3. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Part of our class from last hour in Colossians, when we're talking about the body of Christ, that the church is the body, Christ is the head, and the, uh, the somatic principle that applies to the church. 
And so there was imprisonment. So everything they'd experienced, and wherever they are, we don't. There's all kinds of speculation, and uh, and we've discussed that. We don't know exactly who they were. We don't know exactly where they were. But they were clearly priests with a Old Testament background throughout the Book of Hebrews. That's that's indicated. But at the time of this epistle's writing, they had not yet suffered martyrdom. Although there are some people who try to read that into thirteen seven. There's no reason to do that, but they do anyway. In 13.7, the command is, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. And it's talking about former teachers, former church leaders that aren't around anymore. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct or the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. And in, uh, to me, it, it doesn't even imp- imply martyrdom, but you'd be shocked at how many people insist that you can read between the lines and find, a, find martyrdom there in that verse. Well, to me, that contradicts what we're reading today in chapter 12, that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. If they had former pastors, former church leaders that had been suffering martyrdom, I don't think that uh, the author of Hebrews could have written what he wrote in 12.4. He would never have written, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. He would have said, you have. You've had former church members that were martyred. You've, you've experienced this. And so, uh, again, we, try, we reconcile these things, comparing Scripture to Scripture and getting the totality of what the author is conveying to these readers. And so I use 13.7 conclusively to... Uh, or I use 12.4 conclusively to understand that 13.7 is not, is not implying martyrdom on the part of their former teachers. And we do the same thing here this whole weekend. We've been praying for Ralph and Dorothy Braun. We've been remembering those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Ralph Braun was pastor here from 81 to 95. 14 years. And so we, uh, and there's not as many that were here from back in those days, but we still have some, and uh, including my wife and I, we remember Ralph and Dorothy. We just visited with them last October. Remember those who led you. And uh, the admonishment that we have to, uh, to love them before the Lord and pray for them and, and bless them in every way. No update this morning. I'm going to check after class is over and see how Dorothy survived the night. But she had a stroke and uh, was not responding well to some of the treatments All right, so we're praying for that. They had not yet suffered imprisonment. And and this is kind of a, he doesn't say it's on the way, but does he really have to say that? Because he's telling them not to grow weary and lose heart. And, And he says, you've not yet suffered martyrdom. So how tough have you really had it compared to what other churches have had and compared to what you guys have coming up? And if you're going to bail now, why in the world would you bail now? So not only have you not done something, you've also done something. So they've not done something that's on the way, but they've also done something they should never have done. And that's forgetting the doctrine that they learned as children, the doctrine that they learned years ago. This is foundational stuff. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. When you're in those early chapters of Proverbs, in fact, I take Proverbs 1 through 9, the first nine chapters of Proverbs uh, and entitled it Parental Discipline. Because time and time again, you've got my son, 
you got the admonishments there that, that had to have come from David and Bathsheba to Solomon in his, in his childhood. And then Solomon records them in his day. I don't suspect that Solomon had a lot of hands-on dad time with, uh, you know, when you've got a thousand wives and concubines and however many, however many, you know, Rehoboam had some, had some siblings. But the, uh, you know, how much time does, does Solomon have to be the dad, to pass that wisdom on? But in chapters 1 through 9, though, those, those admonishments come again and again and again and again. And so that's what we have here. What we're reading in verses 5 and 6 is, uh, is coming out of uh, Proverbs chapter 3. Second thing I want to pay attention to here. The epistle recipients. And I don't know what else to call them. <laughs> you know, it's kind of unwieldy, but whoever they were, wherever they were, the original epistle recipients were presently striving against sin or sinners. So here's a linguistic puzzle for you. And I know this hour we don't do a lot of exegesis and a lot of, I'm not going to tell you that it's hamartia and we're going to talk about you know, Greek Strong's numbers of things. But take a, take a note. When you're looking at verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4, there is a progression in the usages of this term. And so when we talk about you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin, it's really the striving against sinners and the sin that they want to sweep you up into or the harm they're going to direct against you, as the case may be. Because that's what Jesus had to deal with. And so, again, as verse 1, we're to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. That's sin singular. And we, we understand what that is about staying in fellowship, confessing your sins, keeping short accounts. You want to lay aside the old man. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But then there's Jesus. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And so we, in addition to having the sin we have to lay aside, we also have to endure the hostility of sinners. And so then in verse 4, we, we kind of get a synthesis of both of those ideas. When it talks about your striving against sin. So you see how that goes from verse 1 to verse 3 to verse 4. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. So you do your best, you lay aside the encumbrances, you lay aside the sins, you're staying in fellowship, you're walking great, but you still got all these sinners everywhere. And they're expressing hostility against you. Just like they did with Jesus. He didn't have any sins, he committed no sins. But he was surrounded by the same unbelievers we're surrounded by. The same sinners surrounding us were surrounding him. And that hostility gets directed. And so now we have to ask ourselves, what do we do in our striving against sin? And how do we keep it biblical and not get caught up in some kind of a morality crusade? <laughs> And let me tell you, this verse gets abused. And there are Christians who take it as their mission in striving against sin 
to try to, um, you know, shut down certain businesses or protest certain things or take up political action or uh, to try to, um, to enforce a theocracy on this world and the kingdom's not even here yet. <laughs> J. Vernon McGee called it whitewashing the devil's world. <laughs> I think Colonel Feem used similar vocabulary as well. Whitewashing the world's, uh, the devil's world. The, um, in fact, McGee made some of the city elders upset. Some of the, uh, in Los Angeles, he pastored the church of the open door. And there were Christian leaders and political leaders and folks that wanted J. Vernon McGee. He had such prestige and, and he was on the radio and he was well-respected. They felt that if he, if he marched with them, if he threw his name behind the effort, that they would really gain traction and do different things and he wouldn't have any part of it. He, he, say, he told him, he said, the Lord didn't command me to clean up this cesspool. He told me to fish in it. <laughs> you know? And the old farm boy from Waco, or where he was from, Hillsboro, I think. Anyway, um, he, he knew how to preach it. And so when we're striving against sin, what we have here in verse 1, 3, and 4, it's a triple usage of sin, sinners, and sins. In verses 1, 3, and 4, presenting a vivid exhortation. Lay aside personal sins, endure the hostility of sinners, resisting and striving even to the point of bloodshed. That's having our blood shed, not shedding their blood. Okay. And so we have the, uh, the chain here. And so, you know, we ask ourselves, and this is tough. This is much easier to apply in Cameroon, for example, when there's violence directed against Christians every day. When uh, you saw the email where Pastor Ezekiel was robbed this past week and they vandalized his, uh, his motorcycle. And we were blessed to actually provide for the repairs of that motorcycle. What a joy. And, uh, you know, we, to have such community with believers all over the world, I, I wouldn't trade this day and age, I mean, as ugly as it is and as wicked as it is and all the confusion of things, but we can, we can, I can pull a phone out of my pocket and be chatting with Pastor Ezekiel in Cameroon. To me, that's incredible. And so striving to the point of bloodshed. Are those days coming up for the United States of America? Are we about to reach that point? In some cases, we already have passed that point. We've got to ask ourselves, are we fair-weather Christians or do we draw a line in the sand and say, okay, well, as long as it's not too uncomfortable, I'll keep serving you. But then if we come to harm, oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, We're going to come to that moment. We're going to be like Peter, either denying the Lord or we're going to say, yep, I'm with him. And that's why these exhortations are being given here. When it says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, you know, you go to do a visit with somebody in prison. You ever visit somebody in prison? You go and visit somebody in prison and they, they automatically know that you're connected somehow. You know this person. Or why would you be visiting them? Oh, you're visiting this person? Are you also a Christian? Well, what if, that, what if there's a price to pay for admitting that? You know, that might limit the number of visitors you get. <laughs> okay. In any event. So it's kind of a neat chain there that deals with that. Now, it's well grounded in the Old Testament. Although well grounded in Old Testament doctrine, the epistle recipients forgot a critical principle. Although well grounded in Old Testament doctrine, the epistle recipients forgot a critical principle. 
And perhaps um, it would be useful to, to show some, in fact, I'll do that. I'm going to show you some things you can do with Logos and, and Bible software and, and, and work your way through a passage such as this, work your way through a book such as this. But if you've been a part of this study from the beginning, you've noticed most of he, a lot of the book of Hebrews is Old Testament quotation. How many times did we have, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? How many times did we have, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? We had Psalm 110 again and again. We had other Psalms. We had the Pentateuch. We had Deuteronomy. We had other passages. And, and so they're well-grounded. The author is writing these things as if his, his audience knows them already. They just need to put them into a church-age focus. And then to lose sight of, he, of Proverbs chapter 3. So let that stand as a warning. It's interesting to me that you get believers that have been saved. We've got believers here that were saved in the, uh, in the 1940s, 1950s, something. All right. I don't want to give it away, but <laughs> and I'm not going to chase them away either, like that idiot church in Minnesota that's telling the gray-haired people don't come back and, or color your hair because they want to have a younger image in the church and they don't want gray hair in the church. And so they're making, they're telling, the, the pastor's telling the older people, stay home or color your hair. All right. <laughs> and so we, yeah, we've got folks here that, that were saved in the 1940s. How awesome is that? And however long you've been saved, you've been saved 60 years, 70 years, whatever. And even though you know all this doctrine and stuff you've been learning for ages, any one of us can drop it. Any one of us can forget it. Any one of us can neglect it. And if there's something that you just don't think about for the longest time, uh, it gets pretty hard to ever remember it ever again because it's been so long since you even brought it up. And so to forget something as basic as Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, I mean, how do you forget that? Because it should be something that's grounded into you from childhood in these things. Let me just, uh, I said I was going to do this, so let's do this now before I forget. Um, and depending on what library you have or don't have, you may or may not have this, but under tools, it's a thing called New Testament use of the Old Testament. And unless you pin it to the top of your menu, it may not be so easy to find. Um, but I use this so often, I promote it to the top. But when you go to tools, and you can scroll all the way down, past content, past... Oh, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. See, this is why I need a mouse up here. I don't know who invented this touchpad, the scroll thingy here. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, they will answer for that at the Great White Throne. <laughs> All right, so scroll down, and it's way down low. And you get down past lookup, you get down past library, utilities. Down here near the very bottom is this interactive media. And there are a lot of these. And depending on your library, you may have more, you may have less, maybe you have none. Um, but start hunting through these and find out what they are. Start playing with them. Just have a, just kill an afternoon just having fun with these things. And when you find one that you really, really like like the New Testament use of the Old Testament, 
Well, then instead of hunting for it every time, you can right-click and pin it to the top. And that way it's always up there at the top, so the next time you need it, that's what I did just now, I went here to Tools and it was sitting right there on the top. So it was able just to click on it and do that. You can also, you can just drag it up to your toolbar and drop it on the toolbar so that uh, it'll become one of these icons up here on your toolbar. Anyway, I don't collect any royalties, no commissions, I'm not making money on this. <laughs> now when you first open it up, this is what you got. And it's got all of the, uh, the Old Testament, 2,572 places that the Old Testament applies in the New Testament. Either as, not necessarily direct quotations, but they could be citations, they could be an echo, they could be an allusion. And they're all broken down that way for you if you want to subdivide them in such a way. You notice that on the top left corner. We're going to start to sort through uh, and, and limit what we're doing here. All right, so um, we're just going to... Revelation has the most. has 590 Old Testament quotes. Acts has 284, Matthew, Luke, Hebrews. Ah, there we go, Hebrews. Hebrews is the fifth most uh, book that uses the most of the Old Testament with 229 usages. And so let's just select that. There we go. And now the panel on the right is going to go only to the Hebrews verses. And you'll notice starting from Hebrews 1-2 is quoting Psalm 2-8. And then Hebrews 1-3 with Psalm 110 and verse 1. Notice from verse to verse, just from verse 2 to verse 3, we went from Psalm 2-8 to Psalm 110 verse 1. That's powerful. We learn that God himself builds this into the scriptures. That's why we search the scriptures to see if these things are so. That's why we study line upon line, precept upon precept. That's why we put these things together the way that we do. Now you notice out of the 229 places that the book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, 47 of them are coming from the Psalms. And, if, and you can click on all of these. I mean, you can, you can limit it to Psalms and the panel on the right you're furthermore zoning in, you're furthermore you know, studying, breaking it down. So now on the right, all we're doing is looking at the, the places where Psalms appears in the book of Hebrews. Over here you toggle between the New Testament and the source. I won't even... Let me take off Psalms. We're not looking at Psalms, we're looking at Proverbs. 47 times Psalms is brought into Hebrews. 39 times Genesis is brought into Hebrews. 29 times it's Exodus, 19 times it's Leviticus, 19 times it's Deuteronomy, 14 times it's Numbers, 13 times Isaiah, 12 times it's Jeremiah. Haven't gotten to Proverbs yet. The author of Hebrews has not quoted Proverbs as many times as these other books. Now I have to click on more here. Uh, even Joshua gets four uses. Ezekiel gets four uses. Sirach is not in the Old Testament, but it's in the Septuagint, and the author alludes to it four times. Second Samuel three times. Second Chronicles. Who turns to Second Chronicles? The author of Hebrews put three quotations from Second Chronicles into the book of Hebrews. Then we finally get to Proverbs. There's only three. And you know where they are? They're right here. <laughs> Hebrews 12.5 is the first time. Hebrews 12.6 is the second time. And then verse 13, also here in chapter 12. 
Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That's an allusion to Proverbs 4.26. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. So there's three citations. By the way, let's scroll back up to the top of this. You notice all those numbers changed as well. So now the quotations are two and the allusion is one. Because that third one isn't an exact quotation, it's just an allusion to a passage from Proverbs. All right. See how that works? If you need more, Wednesday night we can, we can show you more and uh, answer any questions you might have. So, the author of Hebrews has been given some pretty deep theology. has been taking the readers into things from the New Covenant to the Melchizedek priesthood to entering into rest, all kinds of things. It's a, it's a deep book. But now he's taken it back to Sunday school. He's taken it back to Proverbs chapter 3. <laughs> and that's awesome. That's, that's like, you know, when a, a Bible church pastor today says, oh, guess what? Uh, starting in New Year's, we're going to do, uh, we're going to teach basics. And then the reaction, oh, basics again. Didn't we just do basics in 2010? Yeah, like nine years ago, 10 years ago. Aren't we due for it again? Let's do it again. And you can't do it too many times. And if you can't remember the last time we did it, we're overdue. We better do it again. Because basics are foundational. So even though they're well-grounded in Old Testament doctrine, these uh, recipients had forgotten. And this isn't just the author's opinion. The Holy Spirit inspired this in Scripture. It says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Let's hold our finger here and look back at Proverbs chapter 3. We actually do a Proverbs series on Wednesday mornings. We're up to chapter 19 now, so it's been a while since we were back in chapter 3. But you're going to notice it begins with a my son. And then it says, do not forget my teaching. Okay? Because it's forgettable. You know, don't do what the Hebrews recipients are doing. But let your heart keep my commandments. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing for you here, but you're going to notice um, this is a parent pouring out their heart to their children. And uh, in the case of David and Bathsheba, they didn't exactly get their marriage off on the right foot. Okay, Um, We're talking adultery, murder, the first baby died, and then Solomon. Solomon was the comfort. That was the second child to David and Bathsheba. Verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. They're pleading with Solomon to do this when it's not what they did. Had they been applying these verses, you know, Uriah would still be alive. There wouldn't have been the adultery. There wouldn't have been the murder. And so parents obviously want the the Lord to uh, work in their children in a far greater way than they are in their own generation. 
You get down to verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father, the son in whom He delights. Now that harsh verb for scourging is not actually in the Hebrew text of Proverbs. But it is in the Septuagint translation and it is in the uh, New Testament Greek text from Hebrews chapter 12. So my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord. On a volitional basis, when God has his hand of judgment upon you, (laughs) pay attention, submit to it, learn from it, accept it, thank him for it. Don't uh, reject it. In other words, don't act like it's some kind of a mistake. (laughs) You tell the Lord, excuse me, God, I think this is, uh, you didn't mean this for me, right? I mean, (laughs) and how many believers delude themselves into thinking that they're the most persecuted, undeserved suffering hero since the book of Job? (laughs) And it's nothing even remotely like that. They're not under undeserved suffering. They're under divine discipline. They are fully guilty of everything and more that God is, is disciplining them for. So we want to be objective on these things and humble before the Lord and not, uh, not forget this critical principle. Paternal discipline. Paternal discipline, including reproof and even scourging is among the greatest spiritual blessings we experience here on earth. It is the birthright for a believer walking in the light. It's our birthright. So when God disciplines us, thank Him for it. It's a reminder of who we are. It's a reminder of who He is and by His grace who we are. It's our birthright. We're going to see some harsh verses coming up in verses 7 and following that talk about bastard children. That if you're without discipline, you are illegitimate sons. And uh, that's, that's harsh language. So thank God that we have the Father that we have. The Father who loves us. Because it's connected to love. If you want to be without discipline, that means you want to be without the Father's love. Because He loves. He disciplines whom He loves. Or you want to claim a different father. I had several times in my childhood where, I don't, I mean, it was almost universal. And I had church friends, I had school friends, I had Boy Scout friends. There were three separate friends, and and those categories never overlapped. And I had all kinds of friends in different stages of of my life. And, um, and, And they all had better fathers than my father as far as I was concerned. And by better, I am carnally speaking about more permissive, less disciplinary. Uh, They got away with a ton of stuff. Stuff I didn't get away with. I got spanked for things that friends would never get spanked for. And it was never useful to point out, oh, you know, Jimmy so-and-so, I'm just (laughs) making up names. Um, you know, saying, you know, little Freddie's dad doesn't spank him for this. And, and that never works. Because my dad was very correct in saying, well, I'm not, I'm not Freddie's dad. Freddie's dad doesn't love Freddie as much as I love you. 
Okay? <laughs> yeah, this is how it works. Now, you don't like it at the time. This chapter is going to prove that. We don't like it at the time. But later, down the road, when you're looking back, and you realize that the kids that grew up with discipline, the kids that grew up with parents who cared, they didn't end up in the streets or the jail or the prison or whatever like so many in our society today. They didn't even know their dad or have a dad or a dad didn't even care and let them do whatever. You end up with inmates running the asylum and everything else. So don't forget this stuff. Whom the Lord loves, he reproves. So it comes as a package. You want a father who loves you? That means you've got a father who reproves you. He disciplines you. And thank God for it. It is the birthright for a believer walking in the light. The Proverbs instruction terminology is so clear. And again, this is not an exegetical hour, so if you don't want to learn the Hebrew yaser, you don't have to, but I recommend you do. If you don't want to learn the Hebrew musar, oh, I love musar. Musar is the noun that comes from the verb yaser. Yaser, Y-A-C-A-R, number uh, 3256. It's a verb that means to discipline, to chasten, to admonish. To discipline, to chasten, to admonish. It's a verbal correction. It can be a corporal correction as well. The noun form of which is musar. You tack a, a meme in front of it, the letter M. So musar is the noun that comes from yaser. And that Strong's number is 4148, if you use your Strong's Concordance for your word studies. And it speaks to the discipline itself, the experience of that discipline, the activity of that discipline, the experience, the, the process, the benefit of that discipline. So it speaks about discipline, speaks about chastening, speaks about correction. And we absolutely need it. Train up a child in the way he should go. Children require discipline. And when it's enforced, when it's enforced fairly, when it's enforced consistently, those are the boundaries that children need because they're children. Again, Proverbs chapters 1 through 9. Again and again and again. Now 35 times in the Septuagint and in, in Proverbs and then on into the New Testament, the Greek equivalents are paiduo and paideia. Paiduo and paideia. The P-A-I-D is the Greek word for child. It's where we get our pedo expressions. Pedagogy. Or is it goji? Gaji? Probably gaji. Like isagaji. Warren gets me on this every time. I think he messes with me too. However I pronounce it, he sends me an email in the afternoon and tells me it's the other way. And I think we've gone both directions now on isagogy and pedagogy. All right. Pedophilia, nasty. All the pedo terms, right? And so paiduo, you treat a child like a child, which means you discipline them. You enforce structure. You chasten, you correct, you shape that child 
so that as he grows out of his childhood, he leaves behind his childishness. Because if you don't discipline, you end up with adult childish people that are biologically adult but still childish in their outlook. And so they must be paiduoed. P-A-I-D-E-U-O, that's the verb, number 3811. And paideia is the noun, feminine noun, paideia. P-A-I-D-E-I-A, it's number 3809. And in the New Testament, obviously, I think we're familiar, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the Musar, if it was Hebrew, it'd be Musar, but it's um, Greek, so it's Paideia, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline the children. And maybe they don't want to do something. Make them do it. Because it's good for them. It builds character. <laughs> it's biblical. It's shaping the, uh, their growth. And it's in the Lord. The nurture and instruction, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Second Timothy three sixteen. Skipping over all those Hebrews uses for the moment. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed. We know this verse. All Scripture is God breathed. This is what we turn to for the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of the Word of God. It's not human traditions that they compiled in a book over centuries. It is the God-breathed, inspired, inerrant Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, and here with training in righteousness, this is the child training in righteousness, the paideia, training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, or adequate, equipped for every good work. Our adequacy comes from God. Our adequacy comes from God's Word. And it's what disciplines us. The Bible disciplines us and we can't forget it. We end up like the readers of the, the recipients of the Hebrews epistle. Look how many times in chapter 12, paideia or paiduo occur. And it's a combined search result list, so I don't know which ones are the verbs and the nouns on this slide, but Verse 5, verse 6, twice in verse 7, verse 8, verse 10, verse 11. Seven times in this chapter. And today we're just looking at uh, 5 and 6. In verse 7 it shows up twice. It is for discipline. It is for paideia that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not Discipline. I'm guessing that's the noun and the verb in the same verse. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is the son that the father doesn't love or the father doesn't acknowledge. The father doesn't claim. The father disclaims and says, you're not my son. (laughs) You're a bastard. You're not mine. And so discipline will be featured twice there in verse 7 and verse 8. If you are without discipline, 
of which all real sons have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Bastards. And next week we're going to have to deal with this. And it's, it's a cultural issue that we've lost in our generation, in our, in our society today. Legitimacy versus illegitimacy. Uh, children born out of wedlock is no big deal anymore. It's normal. In fact, you're kind of weird if you're a virgin at, the, at, at your wedding and, and, uh, and you're faithful to your spouse and you're you know, married before the children come along. And I mean, that used to be, <laughs> it's not, not normal anymore. All right. And then down to uh, verses 10 and 11. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Isn't that great? One of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament. That means that when you're a parent, you do the best you can. (laughs) As it seems good to you. As it seems best And maybe it is, maybe it's not, but by the grace of God, you do what you do. And as it seemed best, and, uh, you know, thank God for whatever he does with it and his results, and and then children can grow up, and if they think it was terrible, then they won't do it in their generation, but if they think it was useful, then they'll they'll do more of it in their generation. (laughs) So he disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's not fun while you're going through it. No one's saying that it is. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards. Now that trained by it, guess what? That's the discipline. The discipline is training. Those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so we can be thankful for it. All right, and this is what the, uh, the readers had forgotten. That God loves them, that God disciplines them. And you say, now wait a minute, did we switch horses in the middle of the stream? I thought we were talking about striving against sin. Jesus endured hostility against himself. And we're going to experience hostility against ourselves. And we're going to fight our own sin battles. And we've got to experience sinners against us. And it seemed like it was a preparation for martyrdom. But now we've got this, you forgot about the Father who loves you and disciplines you. It's the same horse. We haven't changed horses in the middle of the stream. We're still on the same horse. And this is maybe one of the most remarkable aspects of these verses. In the believers, every conflict, even martyrdom, the real issue is not what man is doing, nor even what Satan is doing. The real issue is what is God doing? If you're striving against sin and you're being martyred or you're being persecuted or something bad is happening and God permitted it, then it's His discipline. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We're not talking about two separate things here. It can all be the same thing. Undeserved suffering, the world's persecution, deserved suffering from boneheaded sins that we keep insisting on doing. Whatever the case may be, 
deserved or undeserved, the Father's discipline is instructive. Now Job was under undeserved suffering, but it was still God the Father's loving paternal discipline. I'll show that to you here before we leave today. In fact, we'll look at it very quickly. Before we do that, though, Ephesians 6 and verse 12, remember that? We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers, the authorities. In the book of Hebrews, I mean, in the book of Ephesians, Paul gets his readers to broaden their perspective, quit thinking in human realm only, consider the invisible realm as well, consider the angels, consider the spiritual dimension as well as the earthly dimension, and realize where the real issue is. Because our conflict is not against flesh and blood. It's simply the, the excuse, right? It's the venue, it's the, it's the occasion for the angelic conflict testing. That supervisor that hates your guts, that, that shift supervisor. I had a sergeant in the sheriff's department who, I mean, every single night was constantly giving me the worst shit. The, I mean, the worst uh, duty. You, you show up for your briefing and there's eight of you on shift, nine of you on shift, and, and it's supposed to rotate. It's supposed to, you know, you get your little briefing and they tell you what happened before you got here and what's going on with the inmates, and, and, then, and then you get assigned. You're going to go to this post, you're going to go to that post, you're going to go to that post, you're going to do this duty, you're going to do that duty. And they, they take the nine of us or ten of us and, and they, they spread us around and, and hopefully that kind of variety is good because you don't want to do the worst job ever for six straight months nonstop. <laughs> Who would want that? Okay? But it's not the, but that, that particular sergeant uh, is flesh and blood. My conflict was not with her. Okay. <laughs> um, as far as that goes. Okay. Uh, I don't have to illustrate all the reasons why she hated me and whatever, because, you know, Christian, male, she was uh, uh, a Wicca lesbian. Um, yeah, I don't need to get that. There was just a lot of conflict, undeserved suffering. And yet, the Bible says to submit to your masters as unto the Lord. I had to go to work every night thinking that's Jesus Christ assigning me my duties. Okay? Didn't know that Jesus Christ was a Wicca black lesbian, but okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Very hostile against men, very hostile against heterosexuals, very hostile against Christians, very hostile against white people, very hostile against... I mean, I checked off everything on her list. Kind of fun. But we don't struggle against flesh and blood. Against rulers and authorities. Let's understand the spiritual dynamic. And even indeed what Satan is doing. You know, when Satan got permission to afflict Job, do you remember this? In Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, there's a contrast here And, and this is useful if you're studying the directive will of God, the permissive will of God, the overruling will of God, different things. And when the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan knows all about him. You know, he doesn't say Job who or who you talking about. Yeah, he's considered him. He's checked him out. Left, right, up, down, forward, backward. He's found a hedge everywhere. 
So Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? He knows all about Job. He's been poking and trying to get in there and he can't. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Satan attempts to make a prophetic utterance here in the sight of God and he's wrong. This prophecy is not true. This prediction does not happen. But it's, uh, it's an attack against God. Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. Your hand, God, God's hand. Your hand. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And what does he do? Read the rest of that from verse 13 down and see. You know, God gives permission. It's the permissive will of God. God told Satan to do it. He then put parameters in. He drew a line said he can't cross this line. You can't touch Job. And so Satan goes out and look what happens. His sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and the messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. Was it really the Sabaeans? Or was it Satan? Was it really Satan? Was it God? Are we going to blame the Sabaeans? And then uh, here comes another report. Fire, verse 16. The fire of God fell from heaven. Was it really fire? Or was it Satan? Or was it God? And then in verse 17, it's the Chaldeans in three bands made a raid on the camels and took them and threw the, slew the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And then while he's still speaking, here comes another one. And just wave after wave after wave after wave. And here's the thing, when he gets the opportunity, Satan's got four waves ready to go. All God says is, behold, he's in your power. And these four waves were prepositioned and ready to go. And he launched them. Of course, Job, the prophet, Satan's prophecy falls short. Job uh, did not curse God. Job blessed God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now when you get to chapter 2, There is such a statement. God's statement here is telling when he says in verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me. Yahweh says he's the one who did this. You incited me against him to ruin him without cause. God himself claims the responsibility for ruining Job without cause. You incited me. And because he gave Satan permission to do it, God says, ultimately, I'm accountable. I gave you the permission to do it. Tantamount to, I'm doing this. He had a tool that did it, but he's still the one that did it. And so... In any conflict you and I are going through, even martyrdom, the real issue is not what man is doing, but what God is doing. Not even what Satan is doing, it's what God is doing. Because God's the one that's at work. He is at work in and through us for His good pleasure. And if you don't quite see it in Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6, you're definitely going to see it in Hebrews 13. 
But I think you can see it in Hebrews 12. Because verses 5 and 6 say, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. God's doing it. It might seem to be sinners in hostility against you. It might seem to be your striving against sin. It might seem to be your bloodshed at the hand of someone that's shedding your blood. But the real reality, or the, the real issue is what is God doing? He is disciplining you. He is reproving you. He is loving you. He is scourging you. These things are either directed by Him or permitted by Him, and in either event, it's His purpose that's being accomplished. You know, Satan had reasons for attacking Job. God had different reasons for letting Satan attack Job. God didn't share Satan's reasons, even when He gave Satan permission. God had His own reasons. And so when we are disciplined, that's God's reason being applied. And so to me it's clear, I see God at work in verse 5 and verse 6. Disciplining, reproving, loving, and scourging. And then it gets explicit as well in Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing. This is God the Father equipping us in every good thing to do His will, working in us. This is God the Father working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Father works in us. So the real issue is not what man is doing, but what God is doing in and through us for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work of His good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 12.6 There are a variety of gifts but one spirit, varieties of ministries and one Lord, varieties of effects. Those are the works, the workings but the same God, that's the Father, who works all things in all persons. God is the one who's at work. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this class. I thank you for these students. I thank you for brothers and sisters that study to show themselves approved. That uh, no matter how much they have learned, how much they have known, I thank you, Father, that the desire is always there to return to the, to the truth, to keep being fed, to learn even more, and to live even more. It does us no good to just learn all this stuff and never use it, Father. We have to put it into practice. And I thank you for Austin Bible Church and the congregation that, that uh, are not merely hearers who delude themselves, but doers of the Word of God. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.